You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter and creator of the website MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we continue our weekly exploration of the world of miracles. Last week we had the week off, so we're back today with a new program. And we recently celebrated the Feast of St. James. That was July 25th. James, of course, was the son of Zebedee. He was one of the 12 apostles and was the brother of John. And today we'll be talking about the miracles of St. James and some of the stories and legends, including that of the first Marian apparition in history, Our Lady of Pilar in Zaragoza, Spain. We'll be talking today with Mary, Dr. Mary Jane Dunn from the Department of English and Foreign Languages at Henderson State University. And she's the editor of the book, The Miracles of St. James. Later in the show, we'll be talking with Annie O'Neill, producer of the brand new film, Walking the Camino, Six Ways to Santiago. So we'll be hearing about how St. James is inspiring people on the big screen as well. And of course, in just a bit, I'll be asking you a Catholic trivia question, so get your pens and paper ready. Later in the show, we'll be talking about how Our Lady is honored around the world on today, July 29th, in our segment, 365 Days with Mary. More information on this project can be found at 365dayswithmary.com or on Facebook, 365 Days with Mary. This week in Miracle News, we have a report coming from the blog Religión en Libertad, which is Religion and Liberty, in Spanish, of a Spanish priest, Father Juan Garcia Inza. He's from Murcia, Spain. And he writes on his blog, citing well-informed sources, quote-unquote, um, that, and he's the author of Medjugorje, History and Testimonies of Encounters with the Queen of Peace. That's his book. He says that Medjugorje is likely only a short time away from receiving Pope Francis's ruling with the conclusion of more than four years of work by a Vatican commission of experts. Now, we've heard this from different people in different places before. Uh, again, he's quoting, un, quoting unknown, unnamed, well-informed sources. We'll, we'll see if he's correct. And um, he says that the verdict will uphold the status quo with no final pronouncement on the authenticity of the apparitions. Now, this information was claimed by Father Inza, who's a frequent visitor to Medjugorje since 2000, and, of course, the author of that book. And these are this his angle on this is consistent with previous leaks and hints of where the investigation is heading. Uh, like others, Father Inza believes that Medjugorje will receive shrine status and that there will be neither a definitive yes nor a definitive no to the authenticity of the apparitions while they're still going on and the messages ascribed to the Virgin Mary. And we have a quote. He says, The last word belongs to Pope Francis, who is waiting for the right moment to pronounce his decision. It appears that the official publication of the verdict of the church may be imminent, end quote. And so that's Father 
Juan Garcia Inza, who uh, is coming up with that statement. And like I say, there have been other statements out there similar to this one, and he's saying nothing new. If I had to put my money on it, this is exactly what the church is going to do in this case, approve it as a shrine, but not make any comment on the supernaturality of it. So that would be my prediction as well. And in other miracle news, uh, St. Anthony's Orthodox Church in Learnington, Ontario, on the church's official website, is reporting a story that a man found the image of a saint in the residue at the bottom of his coffee cup. Now, this sounds a lot like the Virgin Mary in the grilled cheese sandwich a few years ago. It sounds like that all over again. But this one is slightly more interesting because the man who allegedly spotted it, Elias Garib, had been invoking uh, this saint, Saint Charbel, uh, during treatments for cancer of his lung and brain. And the brain tumor has vanished. Uh, a quote from the church's website is, quote, Elias's story is proof of God's glory through his saints. The image is nothing short of another great miracle of Saint Charbel. Elias lives cancer-free today. He is a living testimony of God's great love and mercy and the unstoppable intercession of Saint Charbel, the saint of Lebanon. Uh, I'll post an image of this on MiracleHunter.com. It's a pretty interesting image for you to check out and let me know what you think. I personally am always doubtful about these sorts of things, but with that great miracle of his healing, it's pretty interesting. So check it out, uh, MiracleHunter.com. I will post that image for you. And that's the miracle news for this week. To keep up to date with the latest in miracle news, please visit MiracleHunter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a monthly email with the latest Miracle Hunter news, including reports on the latest miracles and news stories, links to past radio episode podcasts, updates on my television series, Miracle Hunters, now in development, and my book, Hunting for a Miracle, due out in fall 2014, any upcoming speaking engagements, and much, much more. So sign up for the newsletter on MiracleHunter.com by clicking the newsletter link at the bottom of the page. And now it's time for Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize for a caller that gets the right answer. This week we'll be giving away a framed image of the piece of artwork entitled The Faces of Mary. It's a photo mosaic of over 100 images of Our Lady that forms a large, beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. You can see the image on the homepage of MiracleHunter.com. Trivia questions are generously provided by Catholic Pub Trivia. It's an organization that partners with Catholic parishes, schools, or religious organizations to host Trivia Night fundraisers at local establishments. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit CatholicPubTrivia.com. And we always try to keep the questions related to the theme of the day's program. Today we are talking about St. James. Here's the question. What is the name of the city in Spain where the remains of St. James are kept? It's also the final destination of the El Camino pilgrimage. That question again, what is the name of the city in Spain where the remains of St. James are kept? And it's also the final destination of the famous El Camino pilgrimage. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com For those just joining the program, this is Michael O'Neill and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show. And for more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit miraclehunter.com 
com. Now it's time to reach into the mailbag or the email inbox, as it were, for today's question of the day. The question is, Dear Miracle Hunter, is the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe the only image of Mary that is considered not made from human hands? Thank you, Sheila. Dear Sheila, thank you for your great question. And actually, there are many images throughout history that are classified as Akiropoita, which is the Greek word meaning not made with human hands. The Guadalupe image and the Shroud of Turin are, of course, the two most famous examples of an image with an inexplicable origin. Most of these images are the stuff of legend occurring at an era before the church employed science to perform formal investigations. One example is Our Lady of Graces from Torcoroma in Colombia. On August 26, 1711, in the highlands of northeastern Colombia, the people of Ocaña celebrate Our Lady of Graces, whose image appeared all, almost 300 years ago beneath the bark of a tree. Now, the story goes that a mestizo named Cristobal Melo, he maintained um, a nearby sugar mill and a small farm. He worked there with his son. And in 1709, he went into the mountains to find this perfect log to make a trough uh, for his farm. After he selected the wood, Cristobal removed the, the bark of the wood, and he saw formed in low relief in the sapwood an image of Our Lady in the form of the Immaculate Conception. This image became known to be the source of many miracles. Uh, other notable examples are Our Lady of Absam in Austria, where her image became miraculously burned into a pane of glass, and Our Lady of Las Lajas in Colombia, where her image is inexplicably present on a wall of a cave, and the color penetrates seven feet deep into the stone. You can find out more information on these images and miracles at the website, MiracleHunter.com. So thanks for your question, Sheila. If you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, please send an email to questions at MiracleHunter.com. Okay, uh, I think we have someone on the line with the trivia uh, answer. Oh, Monica, are you there? Oh, I guess Monica answered the question correctly, but she's no longer there. Um, so we'll be sending her the prize. That was Monica with the right answer. And I'll read the question again with the answer for all the people at home. We had a lot of callers this time. Um, the question was, what is the name of the city in Spain where the remains of St. James are kept in the final destination of the El Camino pilgrimage? And of course, that place is called Santiago de Compostela. So... Thank you, Monica, for, uh, for calling in, and we will send you that prize. And for more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. And now it's time for our segment, 365 Days with Mary. Now, each week we'll be doing this segment entitled 365 Days with Mary, and for each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world, there's a Marian title, a feast, a commemoration of an apparition or other miraculous event being celebrated. Never ceases to amaze me how much the world loves the Mother of God and honors her throughout the year. Now, this project has taken all the dates with their feasts and collected them into this one resource. Each entry features images, a description, and history of the feast day, along with information on the shrines associated with them, including visitor information and links for those, wish those wishing to see these places in person. Now, the project's available in print in the form of a daily engagement calendar, a daily planner, 
as well as online at 365dayswithmary.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter, Twitter, where if you like us, you can automatically receive information about each feast day and learn how our Blessed Mother is honored around the world. So be sure to like 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and visit the website 365dayswithmary.com to see the project. The print version in the form of a daily organizer makes a great gift for anyone with a devotion to Our Lady. Now, today's Marian feast is called the Holy Mary of the Miracles, and that's from Morbio Inferiore in Switzerland in 1594. Now, the Virgin Mary appeared to two girls from Milan, Caterina and Angela, who were poor, sick, and some said they were disturbed by the devil. She appeared to them on a hill in Switzerland in 1594, and she cured them from their ills. Well, the girls had gone to Morbio asking the blessing of Don Gaspar de Berberini. He was the assistant pastor who they was said he had particular healing gifts, so they went there for a healing. But Don Gaspar was absent, so he had gone away to celebrate the feast of Santa Marta de Chernobyl. So they were tired and sad about uh, what was going on, so they were disappointed and they went home. Later that day, it's a Friday, the two girls from Milan, Caterina and Angela, went to pray with their mother and some other women from Morbio before the image of the Virgin painted on the wall there in the ruins of a destroyed castle. Both girls came before the holy image of the Madonna, and they climbed up the ladder leading up to the top of the wall. And that's when the Virgin Mary appeared to them uh, in the image of the Madonna of the Milk, uh, ordered, she, and she ordered a construction of a sanctuary that became the Holy Mary of Miracles Shrine on this border with Italy. Our Lady also said that she should tell everyone to recite 15 Our Fathers and 15 Hail Marys, representing the 15 mysteries of the life, passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord. Finally, finally Katerina said, after going down the ladder, the Virgin had told the others that when the little church is done, uh, she would carry out many miracles as part of her promise. And this is considered the triple message of Santa Maria of Miracles. On July 29, 1927, the image was crowned by Bishop Aurelio Bicciarini. In 1990, the sanctuary was declared by Pope John Paul II a minor basilica. So this miracle is remembered each year at the feast on July 29th. It's got a novena, a a mass at 3 a.m., and celebrations going throughout the day until the evening. And that was today's feast. Be sure to visit the Project 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and online at 365dayswithmary.com to find out more about this devotion or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions celebrated throughout the world. And this is Michael O'Neill, and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. And for more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. And on today's program, of course, we're talking about St. James. And our first guest is Dr. Mary Jane Dunn from the Department of English and Foreign Languages at Henderson State University. And she is one of the editors of the book, The Miracles of St. James. So welcome to the show today, Dr. Dunn. Thank you very much. Uh, we're glad to have you on the program today, and this works out well uh, in conjunction with the Feast of St. James here. And uh, we're excited to hear about uh, your translation of this book and the editing that you did. And tell us a little bit what, uh, what drew you to the project and what uh, inspired you uh, to do this translation. Well, it, it's been a long time 
or it was a long time in coming, I began my interest in St. James and the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela when I was in high school and read that medieval people had walked all this way. And I am not Catholic, but I was fascinated by the medieval period. I was fascinated by this pilgrimage. So I continued studying, and in 1979, I was privileged to go with a group from the University of Nebraska, and we walked uh, the 500 miles, closer to 600 miles, actually, to Santiago de Compostela, beginning in San Juan Pied de Port. This is prior to any of the marked trails or the popularity of of the pilgrimage at that time. So I continued on graduate school, uh, did my dissertation on allegorical pilgrimage literature, and then continued researching St. James. Uh, my colleagues, Thomas Coffey, who was at the at Creighton University with me, and Linda Davidson, who was at the University of Rhode Island, and a friend and a, and a former and continuing pilgrim with me, um, we were frustrated because there was no English version of the miracles of St. James from the Codex Calixtinus. And the Codex Calixtinus is a, a very famous uh, medieval manuscript. It's from about the 12th century, end of the 12th century. It contains five books, and it talks about the history of St. James, sermons, liturgy based on his life. Um, there's a guidebook that is cited, probably the most famous part of the Codex. So the miracles had not been translated and we decided that it was important to do that. And so we sat down, the three of us, and, and started in. I'm not That's a great. Latinist, but Tom Coffey is. And so he did the, most of the translation, and then Linda and I did the research and the background on Miracle Tales, the medieval period, and St. James. So. Sure. So what can you tell what can you tell us a little bit about St. James, a little bit of the background? I think most people are familiar with him uh, from the Bible, but they don't under they don't know about the tradition that grew up in Spain uh, after after those early accounts, the gospel accounts. What can you tell us about St. James and some of the traditions uh, relating to him? Well, the the tradition in Spain is fairly old, although there's, of course, gaps in the history, and there's some um, arguments over whether he was actually transported miraculously after his birth, uh, after his death, to Santiago de Compostela. Um, that's been settled in various centuries by various popes. Um, he was the first of the of the uh, <clears throat> excuse me of the disciples to be beheaded, and so happened that when his body or when his tomb was rediscovered in the 7th century, late 7th century, early 8th century in western Spain, it was during the time when the Moorish or Arab invasion had pretty much overrun the country. So much of what we know about St. James or of his aspects as we see him, both as a pilgrim and as Santiago Matamoros, St. James the Moor Slayer, have to do with this time in history when the Christians were battling to retake control of the Iberian Peninsula. So there's a a long tradition. This year they are celebrating in Santiago the anniversary of St. Francis of Assisi's pilgrimage to Santiago. So it was believed that he actually made the pilgrimage. 
okay. to Santiago to worship at the tomb. So there have been many, many famous pilgrims, and uh, it's been fascinating. There's there's tales of miracles, including the one I know you're interested in, of um, his miracle of seeing or being visited by the Virgin in the town of Saragossa. Which yes, is can actually, you tell us a little bit? It's uh, I think it, uh, according to legend or tradition, it happened in the year 40 A.D., and most accounts relating to the Virgin Mary is that she died much later than that. So it's kind of a strange uh, story. Uh, it's not similar to some of these other stories of visions of the Virgin Mary. It's uh, while she was still alive, supposedly. What can you tell us a little bit about uh, Our Lady of Pilar? It was um, a very specific time. Not just was it 40 A.D., it is very specifically stated, stated that it's January 2nd of 40 A.D. Sure. Now, the, the history of, um, or documentation of a special devotion to Mary in the city of Saragossa is fairly old. Um, Saragossa is an ancient, ancient city. It was an Iberian tribal city. It became a Roman city called Cesar Augusta, which is where Saragossa comes from. It was taken over by the by the Arabs, by the Moors, in 714 and remained under their control until 1118. And then it became um, a Christian capital again of the, the Aragon region of Spain. So... Beginning in the ninth century, we do have some documentation of churches dedicated to Saint, to to Mary, to the Virgin, but we don't actually have any written testimony of that until the middle of the twelfth century, where um, a bishop says um, specifically talks about the devotion to the Virgin of Saragossa. Mm. Um, there's it, Saragossa is an interesting city at this point because it has co-cathedrals. It's not a terribly large town. In the whole surrounding area, there's maybe a million people. It's about the fifth largest city-slash-community in Spain. But there's co-cathedrals. The Cathedral of San Salvador, and then there's the Basilica Cathedral of Our Lady of the Pillar. But it wasn't always called that. Um, It was just called the Church of St. Mary the Greater, Mayor, I guess to discuss distinguish her from Mary um, Magdalene or the other Marys, mm-hmm. uh, Mary and Martha, for example. Sure. So, so it was finally in um, 1296. We have some very specific dates on this, which is rather interesting. Yes. Um, it was 1296 when Pope Boniface conferred an indulgence for pilgrims to visit St. Mary the Greater's church in Saragossa, but he does not mention specifically the pillar. And it's Mm. only a few years later when one of the legal councils of Saragossa promises safety and privileges to pilgrims who come to visit Our Lady of the Pillar. So only in 1299 do we actually have this proof or this conflation of the Church of St. Mary to being not only to St. Mary, but to St. Mary of the Pillar. Um, That's so interesting that it was so late that that, uh, that was actually written down. Sure. Exactly. And it's, it gets even more interesting when you find out that this is, I believe, now this is not my 
my area of history, more, much more yours. I believe this is uh, the only apparition of Mary to, while she was still alive, before her right. ascension. That's correct. And so, and so this was a bi-location. In other words, she was still physically in Jerusalem, but she was also appearing in Saragossa. And she appeared to St. James because he was feeling frustrated in his work. And so she came and said to him that your uh, the foundation you are laying of Christianity in Spain will be as firm as this, as this pillar upon which I stand. So that, that's the crux of the miracle and her hope that she gave to St. James as he was um, preaching and trying to convert pagans on the Iberian Peninsula. Right. He was then told by her to, to create a small shrine, and supposedly he did. Various things have happened. Um, the shrine itself is right on the banks of the Rio Ebro, a very large river for Spain. It's flooded many times. It's washed the foundations out. It's changed the landscape somewhat. Um, so we know that there have been continual churches there, but we don't really know what the original church looked like, what sure. the original shrine looked like. Now we have a large basilica, which was actually built in the mm, late 16th, 17th century. So um, what you see now is, is relatively modern. I have Absolutely. only been to the chapel, and it, she was originally housed, her pillar and her statue were originally housed, in a chapel off the cloister, so not even in the main sanctuary. And people, I think, even today go, expecting her to be the front and center of the main nave, the main sanctuary, but she's not. She's off in a chapel to the side. And uh, and so... That's very interesting. Anybody going there, I I agree with you completely, they'd expect her to be uh, the central focus, the focus of the entire basilica there, so... Uh, that that's very interesting. Thank you for that background on Our Lady of Pilar. Uh, that was excellent. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Now, of course, your your book, uh, The Miracles of Saint James, doesn't get into any of the details of Our Lady of Pilar, but it it's a codex uh, that that lists many miracles that are attributed to Saint James. Can you tell us a little bit about how that book first came to be put together, and maybe we can get into some of the stories that are contained there. Sure, they, they are very interesting, I think. Um, we don't know for sure who compiled all the miracles. Um, the, the dates on the miracles, the earliest one is dated um, around the early 9th century, about 830 thereabouts. And the latest one is dated 1135, so relatively close to when the collection was put together, to the date the collection was put together. Um, we think that this whole codex was brought together by one of the bishops who was the greatest promoter of St. James and Santiago de Compostela itself, um, and that is um, Diego Helmírez. And he was a bishop for almost 40 years. He lived to be quite an old man and was very powerful and was St. James' greatest promoter and therefore also self-promoting. But he, <laughs> created, but he created this codex 
of liturgy, of miracles, um, the story of his of St. James' translation, the miracle of how his body came to rest in mm-hmm. Western Spain, and a guidebook, and then a story of Charlemagne fighting the Moors in Spain. So this is how we know that, that St. James St. James became the warrior to combat the the Arabic invasion of Spain. Mm-hmm. So, so that was that. There's only 22 miracles. Um, very few of them. Only a couple of them um, happen. Only one, actually, as I think about it, happens actually in the cathedral in Santiago. The rest occur all across Europe. There's many nine that. Have that happened on the Iberian Peninsula, five in France, five occur on the Mediterranean Sea, and three occur in Italy. So St. James was well-traveled, and (laughs) all along his pilgrimage route. So that was another part that's very interesting. And and most of the times he's helping them. He helps prisoners. He helps people who are drowning, he saves people from other um, other bad people, from robbers, from from someone who is out to hurt them. Um, he does heal a couple of people, but he's not generally considered a healing saint. He's not a thaumaturgic saint. He, he does other kinds of miracles than just, there's no holy water, for example, to be to be gathered at Santiago de Compostela. There's sure. no um, no healing dirt like in the the shrine at Chimayo, Mexico, New yes, Mexico. Yes. I've, so, I've been there. That is, that is sort of a different shrine, that uh, Chimayo shrine, where most you're used to putting water on yourself, and then they ask you to put dirt on. So that's exactly, a different, that's a different take on that. So, of all the miracles, uh, the 22 that that you have listed in the book, do you have a favorite of that set that that you'd be willing to share? Um, I think that the the interesting one for for us, and in light of the connection to our Lady of the Pillar in Saragossa. This is not a very well-known one, but it's the very, very first miracle, and it speaks to this idea of St. James helping the Christians in battle, and it actually takes place in Saragossa. So I thought that one might be of most interest, of pertinent. So it is the first miracle of his collection, and it is supposedly written, written by... Pope Calixtus. We do not believe that he actually wrote it down, but that's the that's the saying as it goes. So it says, St. James the Apostle, who in the fervor of obedience was the first of the apostles to suffer the pain of martyrdom, undertook through countless signs of his powers to remove the people's roughness, which he saturated with the doctrine of his holy preaching. St. James, who arose by divine influence as the worker of such power, after he has wiped away the sweat of his labor with the cloth of reward, now pours a display of his powers abundantly over those who tirelessly and unceasingly petition him. Therefore, we will tell straightforwardly a certain miracle that we heard and recognized as true in its proper order in the series of those following it. At the time of Alfonso, king over the regions of Spain, the fury of the Saracens, 
that would be the Moors, increased quite sharply. A certain count named Ermengotis saw the Christian religion oppressed by an attack of the Moabites. Girded with the support of his army for the purpose of overcoming their ferocity, and based on indications of certain victory, he attacked. However, despite the merits of our side, with his stronghold overcome, he ran into the contrary of triumph and loss. As a result, the savagery of the enemy, filled with pride of elation, bordering on arrogance, led the 20 men encouraged by a wave of faith, and among them there was a priest, into captivity in the city of Saragossa as a sign of victory. Here, in the semblance of per- perpetual blindness of hell, in the intolerable darkness of prison, the prisoners, bound with restraints of various types, chained together with divine inspiration and with the priest's advice, begin to call upon St. James in this way. James, precious apostle of God, you who piously come out of mercy in aid to those in the snares of their oppressors, and who offer your hand of consolation toward the wailing from the unspeakable captivity, hasten to free those of us who are crushed so inhumanely. St. James, hearing their voices of inconsolable pain, appeared in brightness in the darkness of the prison, saying, Behold, here am I whom you have called. The prisoners, whose heads were bent over onto their knees because of the magnitude of their pain, were encouraged by the clarity of this sound, and they threw themselves at the feet of the saint. St. James, feeling their pain deeply and pouring the salve of his power on them, broke through their chains. Then, with his potent right hand joined in the hands of the captives, the saint, with divine approbation, released them from this perilous prison and took them to the city's gates, with him in the lead. When the saints had made the great sign of the cross with apostolic reverence, the gates willingly granted exit, and once again the prisoners had exited, the gates returned to their former closed state. St. James the Apostle, quite some time after the cock's crow and with the first ray of light almost shining on them, led them to a certain castle held in safety by the Christians. Then after telling them that he could be called on by them, he rose toward heaven. Then calling on him with a loud voice, as he had just told them to do, the gates of the Christian stronghold opened, and the former captives were taken inside. On the next day, they left the castle and started toward their homes. After some time, one of them, seeking the threshold of St. James, told everyone on the feast day of the Saints' Translatio, that would be December 30th, which in our time is celebrated annually on the third calends of January, that all of these things had happened in the way in which we have written down. This was accomplished by the Lord, and it is miraculous in our eyes. Therefore, let there be honor and glory to the Supreme King forever and ever. Amen. Now that, that was great. Thank you very much for, for reading that story. And uh, so there's 22 stories within the book, The Miracle of St. James. We're talking today with Dr. Mary Jane Dunn, one of the editors of The Miracles of St. James. And there are 22 miracle stories, and you just heard one of them. Um, thank you for thank you for sharing that with us. And can you give us a little bit of context of this uh, codex? As far as are there other similar uh, uh, collections that are put together for all the early saints, or is this one unique in some sort of a way? Many of the saints and many of the shrines do have collections of miracles. Um, Saint Foy in France, for example, has miracles. Usually the miracle tales are tied 
more specifically with the shrine. We were talking about the shrine at Chimayo, for example. Mm-hmm. And so the miracles would be what happened when that person arrived here. The, the same thing happens in Canterbury, for example. There's miracles that happen at Canterbury. But I think that for the most part, these miracles are fairly unique in that they are so widespread and so worldwide and don't require the, the saved person to be at the shrine. They don't even necessarily have to be on their way to the shrine. Some of them do go to the shrine after having been saved. Sure, in Thanksgiving, right? In Thanksgiving, but some do not. Some are saved and don't realize it until they get home and say, oh my gosh, that must have been St. James who carried my burden over the mountains. Very much like Christ on the road to Emmaus, but, but he's not recognized until the end, till it's over, till, till the, the situation has, has changed. That they say, oh, so that's who it was. <laughs> makes sense now. Sure. No, I think that makes sense uh, to make that distinction between a lot of these miracle stories uh, are raised up or are written down in order to draw people to the shrine and talk about sort of the miraculous or healing uh, power that can be found at a, sh- a given shrine. But if they're spread all over Europe, that's kind of a different story altogether. So that's a, a great distinction that you make. It's interesting, too, though, because of all these other minor shrines um, that are trying to attract pilgrims, the the shrine at, or the cathedral at Santiago de Compostela, Rome itself, and Jerusalem, of course, were the big three of pilgrimage in the Middle Ages. And at one point, there there was no way to go to Jerusalem. That would be the preferable destination on a pilgrimage, but because of the Crusades, because of who was controlling the land, because of the distance, because of having to go by sea or go such a far distance, they went to Santiago, which is kind of the other direction entirely, but it became a faith journey. Going to Rome always was important but it always had a more political overtone to it. So that I go because I want to visit the Pope, because I need his advice, I need a judgment, I want to see where the early Christians lived, I want to see the early churches. But there was no one center. The center was the Pope, and he was still alive at that point. And so it made it a different type of journey for a different reason. Poor people couldn't afford to go to Jerusalem. Poor people didn't need to go to see the Pope, to have them, to have a, a decision made. They didn't need to go for political purposes, for example. But St. James was accessible. He was just like them. He was a fisherman, and he was a disciple, sure, but he was at a place they could get to. There was um, there was a 
a different sense of what he offered people, I think, in the Middle Ages, or what his pilgrimage offered people. And it was yeah. kind of a mini crusade also that, you know, Spain was being overrun by the Moors, by the Saracens, also, in addition to having lost Jerusalem. So they could go and do their part. This is the time of the Cid, for example, and the time of Charlemagne. And so there's this sense of, I can go and do my part. I can reach this. I don't have enough money to go to Jerusalem. Now that's a that's a wonderful backdrop uh, to these miracles and to the establishments of the various shrines there. And uh, today we're we're talking with Dr. Mary Jane Dunn. She's one of the editors of the Miracles of Saint James. Uh, Dr. Dunn, can you uh, give the listeners? I think that you've given them a lot to be excited about with the history there, and and people may want to read about these miracles. Where can people find uh, your book? Who was it published by, and and where can they purchase it? It was published, or it is published by Italica Press of New York, and it is now available for Kindle. So you can go to Amazon.com and even download it onto your Kindle. Great. So, And I will say that it does have, we have the 22 miracles. They're very short. All total, there's barely 20 pages of miracles. But we did also include one of the most famous sermons, um, that talks about the whole pilgrimage to St. James and the history and who he was and why we go there. And that's called the Veneranda Dies Sermon. In, in Latin, they, they use the first two words of the, of the sermon to name the, to name the sermon. And so Veneranda Dies, it was blessed be the day. And, uh, it's a, it's a lovely, it's, that sermon is, lo- is as long as all 22 of the miracles put together, but it gives a lovely background on why the shell is the symbol of St. James, um, who comes to venerate the saint, and I think it gives people a real sense of the medievalness or the medieval period in which it was written, almost more so maybe than, than the miracle tales, which are sometimes a little bit hard for us to, to swallow sure in the modern uh, day no it's it's important to have uh, a little perspective with those to uh like you say digest swallow and digest those stories so uh thank you so much dr mary jane uh this has been great uh people learned so much today about um about this great saint and about these miracles of saint james and i encourage everyone to pick up a copy of the book so thank you so much for joining us today it was uh, it was a great pleasure Thank you. It was my pleasure. It's always fun to talk about one of my favorite topics. Bye-bye. And that was Dr. Mary Jane Dunn from the Department of English and Foreign Languages at Henderson State University, and she was one of the editors of the book, The Miracles of St. James. Uh, We'd like to thank her for joining us on today's program. And for those just joining the program, you're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show. And next up on the program, we are going to be interviewing the co-producer of Walking the Camino, Six Ways to Santiago. Uh, It's a brand new film that just came out, and we are honored to have uh, with us today uh, Annie O'Neill. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Annie. It's always a pleasure to meet another O'Neill. That's right. (laughs) 
happy to make your acquaintance. Uh, no relation here, but we're happy uh, to hear about this brand new film. Uh, this just came to my attention uh, very recently and was excited uh, that I was doing a program on St. James. And there's a, a film, Walking the Camino, Six Ways to Santiago. And of course, Santiago refers to St. James. What can you tell us about the film? Give us a little bit of a background to it. Well, um, I, and I will start just by saying the fact that you decided to do the program and then found out about the film, some people would say, thank you, St. James. That's right. <laughs> you put That's that right. together. Um, the film is a really beautiful film. I, I feel very blessed to have had a tiny part in the making of this work of art, which is really the brainchild of visionary director Lydia B. Smith. And it's... Um, we filmed in April and May of 2009, and we're independent and low budget. So we really um, we funded the, the film ourselves out of the kindness of people's hearts. And I'm also a pilgrim in the film. I'm also a featured pilgrim in the film as um, I went through the trials and tribulations that every pilgrim does on their way to Santiago. And did you go on the pilgrimage knowing that the film would be made and you'd be in the film, or was the pilgrimage decided upon before the film was made? Yes, I consider myself the luckiest person in the world that I'm an old friend of director Lydia B. Smith. So when she got this idea, I was able to just jump right on it and said, I'll help you produce and I'll be your first pilgrim. I'll be pilgrim zero (laughs) that uh, she could film. Because Lydia had walked the Camino herself in 2008, and one of the things she learned was that the Camino always provides. So she knew she would find the the pilgrims that she would end up filming, but she wanted to be sure to have someone she could film at the very first stop, which is in France, Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Paul. So that's what I was able to, to give to her. And, and for those uh, not familiar, the word Camino mm-hmm. in Spanish means road or way. Is that correct? Yeah. So the Camino de Santiago means the way or the pathway of Santo, Saint, Iago, James. So this is the pathway of Saint James because it leads you to Santiago de Compostela, where the beautiful cathedral um, holds the remains of Saint James. According to legend, there are there are people who who believe and walk in a very devout way, and there are people who question, who walk in a very questioning way, and there's non-believers. Um, everyone is welcome. The, the Camino is welcome for everyone, welcoming to everyone. And can you, can you and, paint a little um, bit of a picture for the audience? Uh, you described that it was a, uh, a grueling walker, has trials and tribulations along the way. Can you describe, give a good uh, picture to... I know people can see the film to, to do that, but if you had to describe your own experience in undertaking this great journey, what, how would you describe it? Surprisingly difficult. <laughs> so I would describe it. I, everything that I thought would be hard was easy, and everything that I thought would be easy was hard. And, you know, we have a website, CaminoDocumentary.org, and we have a lot of YouTube videos, um, little, you know, clips from the film and such, and people can, can go and, and watch those um, if they're interested. We're distributing ourselves, so our distribution is, is, um, is not what you, ex- what you find with a blockbuster film, where it's just opening in a thousand theaters across the land. We're, we're literally taking this film with an RV. 
were driving from city to city where we opened, and one of us, Lydia Smith usually, and myself just for the last few weeks, will go and do Q&As after the film because there are a lot of questions that people have about the documentary, about the way of St. James itself, the Camino de Santiago. And, you know, I think questions are a good thing. We don't necessarily answer every question, but there's a lot of questioning that people in America and people all over the world are doing. And this film is a, is a real gift to pilgrims and non-pilgrims alike. Absolutely. I mean, there's a certain uh, obvious metaphor with this whole taking a journey or walking the path. Uh, we all have things that we want to work through, and uh, you know, taking that physical journey is is uh, parallel to some of the other journeys we take in our lives. So, absolutely, I, I, I think and, that's and for, uh, great for the film. Yeah, and for me, nature is the greatest church of all. For me personally, it's it's so it's it's such a time for me to commune with my beliefs and my my spiritual nature and um, the divine and it's just it's really it's it's movable prayer you know so even though this journey is a journey of 500 miles the more lasting journey may be the one that we take inside getting to know ourselves our beliefs our our faith and you know it's it's a real chance to um to do a lot of contemplation, you know, and I'm a big fan of Thomas Merton. So I, I just, I felt like it was such a gift to just be able to take that time to just contemplate. It was wonderful. It was very difficult. Can you give us a little background on the film as well as how does the film capture uh, the journey of the Camino. What what does the uh, viewer of the film experience when when they see this footage? I mean, in my mind, you you think of a lot of footage of people walking, but uh, it's got to be some some of the stories presented along the way. How does how does the director uh, present that to the audience? Right, and the director had quite a job ahead of her when she got back from filming in two thousand nine. She had three hundred hours, over three hundred hours of film. So that was quite a daunting challenge to edit a an 84-minute film from 300 hours of footage. Wow. And she jokes that her editor would not let her make a four-and-a-half-hour movie. So because of that, even though she had filmed 15 pilgrims and their storylines, she ended up with the six storylines that made it into the final um final edit, the, the final film that people can see. And so you get to know these six people. I, I'm one of six. And um, there's there's people of all ages. The age range is from uh, three years old to 73 years old. And people are doing it for all different reasons. You know, one of her goals was to not present just one way to Santiago, but many ways to Santiago. And I think the biggest compliment we get is when people who have walked the Camino come up to us afterwards after a Q&A and said, you captured my Camino. That was like my home movies. You got it. You got mm-hmm. every, you know, the, the sacredness. You got the con- conviviality of meeting people from all over the world. You got the physical challenges, but you got the ecstasy of spending time in nature, you know. So it's it's a big compliment. And I think a lot of pilgrims, come to the screenings with a little bit of trepidation because 
it's hard to even talk about one's spiritual journey, much less make a film about it. And I think, you know, I may be biased, but I would say that she hit a home run with this film. Absolutely. And I think with you being a producer and someone who experienced yeah. the Camino and that was captured on film that had to be a special experience for you, what, what stuck out in your mind as something that was surprising or that you didn't expect about taking this great pilgrimage? Well, you know, I think I didn't expect, I, I consider myself a religious, per, a, a spiritual person more than a religious person, and I go to a trans-denominational church, um, Agape International Spiritual Center in L.A., and I sing in the choir there. You know, I'm very fully invested in my spiritual nature, but I think I really had a bit of a religious experience. I was baptized, so I was raised Catholic, and I spent a lot of time in churches. So, and I spent a lot of time kind of with St. James. You know, you see pictures of him everywhere. You see statues of him everywhere. And you're doing the same thing he did. You know, you're, you're, you're on a pilgrimage. So it was surprisingly um, religious in a way for me. And two nights before I got to Santiago, one of my, I consider them my Camino family, the people that I spent most nights eating dinner with and staying in the same albergues with, and we grew very close. One of them was very devout. He actually walked with his rosary out, that he held it in his hand as he walked. And um, I said to him, do you really believe the bones of St. James are buried under that cathedral, you know, in that cathedral? And he gave me the very best answer. He said, it does not matter. And I have thought about that almost every single day since eating dinner that night because I just learned a lot about faith in that moment. And I learned a lot about, I mean, there is all this rich history, and then there is faith. And the, the Camino really allowed me a chance to figure out how those, how those work together for me in my life. Absolutely. It really is a walk of faith. And uh, we thank you for sharing your story today. And I think you've got some people excited about the film. Where can people, <laughs> well, see, know, where, where can people see the film, actually? Well, on our Facebook page at Camino Documentary, we have a, a listing of the upcoming, um, upcoming uh, screenings. And we also are partnered with a company called Tug, T-U-G-G, so that people can bring the uh, Camino documentary to their town. And, and also I've written a book about my experience, well, loosely based on my journey, because I really believe that Camino, a Camino never ends. And my book is called Everyday Camino with Annie, because I really truly believe every single day we are on our Camino. And today, Michael, our paths crossed, and I'm so happy for that. Yes, thank you so much for sharing your story and the story of the film. And, yes, uh, and please come to our uh, Camino Documentary Facebook page, our CaminoDocumentary.org, or you can find me at EverydayCaminoWithAnnie.com. That's great. Thank you for sharing those website addresses, and I'll post them on my site as well. And thank we you. we are talking today with Annie O'Neill from Walking the Camino, Six Days to Santiago. So check out that film and check out those website addresses in the Facebook as well. So thank you so much for being with us today. 
Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. What a lovely show. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Annie O'Neill from Walking the Camino and Dr. Mary Jane Dunn from the Department of English and Foreign Languages at Henderson State University and the book, The Miracles of St. James. Be sure to visit MiracleHunter.com as your resource for miracles and keep up to date with how Our Lady is honored around the world at 365dayswithmary.com. Thank you for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill.